You are now listening to the January 5th broadcast of the Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. everyone, and welcome to another program in our Attributes of God series. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. Last week, we learned about love, the most foundational attribute of God. It is not more important than the others, because all of God's attributes are equal, but love is the cornerstone on which so many of God's other attributes build on. Today, we are going to learn about God's compassion because God is love, and he loves us so very much. He has compassion for us and his creation. First, we need to define the word compassion. According to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, there are several Greek definitions for the word compassion. But to summarize them briefly, compassion is defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary as a feeling of wanting to help someone who is sick, hungry, in trouble, etc. God's compassion is all over the scriptures, so let's take a look at a few passages. The first time God uses the word compassion is in the book of Exodus, in chapter 33, where Moses is speaking with God and asks for his presence to be with him and Israel and to lead them. God said he would do this for Moses, Then Moses asks God to show him his glory. In verse 19, God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And then in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and part of verse 7, it says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So because of God's compassion for Moses and the rebellious people of Israel, he led them through the desert toward the promised land, and because Moses found favor with God, he showed Moses his glory. Now let's take a look at the book of Nehemiah. The word compassion is written six times, and four of those times is in chapter 9, where after Ezra the priest had read the law and Nehemiah had proclaimed the day holy to the Lord, the people confessed their sins And the Levites cried out a prayer to God. And in that prayer, they recounted the time of Moses and their forefathers' wanderings in the wilderness and how God's compassion for them sustained them. In verse 19, You, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. In verse 27, But when they cried out to you in the time of their distress, 
you heard from heaven, and according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers. In verse 28, and many times you rescued them according to your compassion. And finally, in verse 31, nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. In the New Testament, Jesus is the perfect picture of compassion as he healed the sick, cast out demons, and fed thousands of people on two different occasions. Jesus also used the word compassion in two of his parables. One about the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verse 33, and part of verse 34, where Jesus said, But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, the man lying by the side of the road. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged his wounds. The other parable is the prodigal son, when the younger son realized his sin and decided to come home to his father. And Jesus said, So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Paul also encouraged the churches in his letters to be compassionate to others. And in closing our program for today, I want to leave you with Paul's words to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 12, where he writes, As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. May we all live by Paul's words today and every day. God bless you all. Goodbye.
can hardly speak peace so unexplainable I I can hardly think as you call me deeper still as you call me deeper still as you Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, we heard a great conversation on how the judgments that we make about ourselves, the generalizations about others, and the vows that we state how all of that has an emotional and spiritual impact on us. And we also talked how to deal with these judgments, generalizations, and all those vows biblically. Well, on today's podcast, we're going to learn two things. Number one, the enemies of trust. And number two, the antitrust strategy. All this material that we're discussing today comes from the book titled Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delph, are the authors of this book. And this podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. Well, let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. 
So guys, as we talk about trust here, uh, God's word talks about enemies, enemies of trust. Right. And you have a whole antitrust strategy is, is what you call it, Alan. Can you say more on that? Well, we talk about the world. The, in the book, it says carnal nature. I really like to use the flesh and the devil. And it really doesn't matter which enemy it is. You still have to take care of it. Um, so people start getting all excited about whether it, you know, is this from the world or is this, you know, external or is this internal? Is this my nature or is it the devil? And the truth is, it really doesn't matter. We still need to take care of it. We need to overcome it. And we talk a little bit about that, Ed. Yeah, I think the real tricky one today in our society is the world. We have, there's so much social media going on. Mm -hmm. There's so much news that uh, is yeah, you know, 24 hours a day. Yeah, it's and and they and you know the problem is they have nothing to report. So what they do is they, they you <laughs> know, isn't that true? I mean, really no true. news. So they may have to make fake news and mm -hmm. and the, you know you move from being a, a journalist to a columnist, mm -hmm. and uh, you're offering up your opinions and it everything we're hearing is laced. It's tr a little bit of truth laced with a lot of opinions, mm -hmm. and we call it analysis, and it's on the front page. They don't <laughs> even put it on the, uh, the opinion page anymore. It's right on that front page, and it's intertwined with a very, very seductive secular academia, mm -hmm. if I could say it that way, a tree of knowledge. And basically when I say that, that's just the, uh, it's humanism. And humanism is the worship of human beings and the idea that we know more than God and uh, our, our, because we have this group think we're right. And these people, it's very interesting, they do live in a bubble and there's a small little group think and they have drink wine with one another and they talk about issues and things like that. And they, they actually think they're the culture. And right. they're very, very surprised when something happens on outside of that bubble. But the news sources are picking this up and it's just bombarding us all the time. And so many times what you hear is what you become. You know, mm -hmm. hearing's a powerful, powerful thing. So, and especially speech, you know, in fact, the Bible says that there's power in the tongue, and there is power in the tongue. Life and death. So what is being broadcast is from the, the world humanistic perspective has a lot of influence. You know, it goes right back to Nimrod in the Bible. Nimrod, you know, his name means a hunter before the Lord. In other words, he made God walk behind him. And he walked ahead of him, and he built the first television station. You know, <laughs> as you think about that, that tower was way up there, and and it was broadcasting a vision all so the time. It was talking it was about the Tower of Babel. Yeah, I mean, the Tower of Babel. It was yeah. telling them a vision all the time, a monument to our greatness. In other mm. words, I'm right. What I feel is right. What I think is right. Whether right or wrong, I didn't get what I wanted. And, you know, they're like the seagulls in, in Finding Nemo. You know, mine, mine, everything is mine. <laughs> and and it, all becomes, it all becomes about me. And that's really hard because we are kind of, we do, uh, how do you say it, move from God to ourselves pretty easily. We like to trust in ourselves. And that's, mm -hmm. Paul wrote on that, do not trust in yourselves, but in the God who judges righteously. And so it becomes, we're actually worshiping ourselves. And when you worship yourself, you're going to become like yourself. One of the things that I think about the world is that it's transitory. It's fleeting. Its pleasures are only for here and now. 
there's nothing eternal about the world. We know that the, the, this world is going to be destroyed, that this world will not last forever. And if all of our thoughts and all of our values are based in this world, then we have totally sold ourselves short as spiritual beings with eternal souls. And certainly the word says that we are aliens. I mean, that we don't fit here. If we feel uncomfortable in this world, that's a good thing. And that we're just passing through, that that our life is like a vapor, is what James says, that we're like a blade of grass that's just going to be, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. And we need to take the long look, is what you're saying. So for us to overcome the world, we certainly need the Holy Spirit. We need our thinking to be discerning. And how do we discern it? We, we discern the world's ways and God's ways by measuring it by God's word. Some people say to me, you know, how can you counsel people's problems all day long? That would get me depressed. And I'm going, you know what? I'm listening to their problems. I'm trying to empathize and sometimes sympathize with them. But really, my main thing that I'm thinking about is what does the Word of God say? And so I get, when I talk with people about their issues that they deal with, I say, issues are going to be here from now until Jesus comes. The real problem is our heart, and our heart is desperately wicked who can know it. And God is the one that does know it, and he's the one that can fix it. And so we do have the world outside that is squeezing us into its mold, is what one translation uh, or paraphrase says, that Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can uh, do what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And when it's saying perfect, it's meaning mature, whole. It's not meaning that you never make a mistake or, or whatever. So we have the world, and then we have the flesh. And the flesh, every day, we it says the flesh wars against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. But what is it that will overcome my flesh? It's the truth. It's the Word of God. And if I'm not telling myself the truth, there was a book that was uh, produced by some psychologists. You know, all of us have a, a narrative going on inside. Uh, we're either singing a song or we're going, oh, yeah, I'm a dummy. I can't believe that. Yeah, uh, We're either railing against ourselves or we're going to be uh, inculcating our mind with the truth so that we can live the truth because we're believing the truth, because we're trusting in the truth. And the truth being a person. Ultimately, right, right. It's I mean, Jesus. That's, that's what we want to bring this back to: is right. that the truth is not just some abstract idea. And the, the Word became flesh and the, dwelt among us. It it, yeah. it was incarnated in human form, but it wasn't limited. In yeah. in the beginning was the truth, the Word. There you the go, logos. And there was nothing else. You know, there was nothing else. And then God brought along illumination, said, "Let there be light." Because he wanted the truth revealed. It was concealed. Everything was in darkness. And then God just spoke, "Let there be light." Bang. And all of a sudden it came out. And this light was for our benefit. Sight, you got to have sight in order to have insight. And so this whole, uh, all of these things, the world, flesh, and the devil, they're all, all contain weapons of mass distraction mm. <laughs> that distract us, will do anything to pull us away from the word. The, the, none of those things 
want to listen to God. And yet he's the one that made us. The owner's manual's there. That's called the Bible. And we'll run best if we do it that way. And that's our challenge is to uh, get past, you know, what, what others are saying, what our body's saying to us, and what the devil's saying to us. And, and basically all three of those are voices. And the question is whose voice are we going to listen to? And especially when we've had an offense, you know, uh, an offense happened, uh, uh, being offended is a choice. And so let's make sure that, that uh, the whole idea here is to make sure that we're tuned into these ver- voices because these ultimately are going to take us to where we want to go. So many people are born to win, but conditioned to lose by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Mm. So talk, let's, we need to talk a little bit about the third uh, issue. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so uh, one example is the Tower of Babel and, and what was going on there. How else do you see the devil deceiving? I mean, he certainly is the liar and the father of lies. He used to be the best person in the choir, and he was the choir director, and then he took a third of all of heaven with him. God made Lucifer, but a process made Satan. Mm -hmm. And that process was he wanted to become God. Mm -hmm. He wanted to determine what was right, wrong, should have happened, shouldn't have happened. He wanted to create but see, he was a creation. So all he can create, the creation can only create a creation. Mm. And I think some people think that it's an even battle between God and the devil. I mean, they think that, that we're on even footing when the truth is God is so superior to Satan and only what God allows Satan to do, just like with the book of Job, he said, look at my servant Job. You can do everything, just don't take his life. So, I mean, God set that up, and he set it up so we could learn his power is so much greater than the power that's in the world. Well, and Jesus said that uh, Satan is a liar and the father of lies, and certainly lies destroy our trust in God. We, We find ourselves trapped by lies and listening to lies and and we have lies that are implanted in our minds these these suggestions that are whispered sometimes into our minds and we think where did this come from sometimes i i can think this is my own thought i am thinking this mm. why am i thinking this and really it's a suggestion that's being planted in me from outside that is suggesting the truth isn't really true or the truth isn't really trustworthy, and instead, I should follow this lie. Now, I remember when we were engaged, we were taking a walk around the block, and we were talking, and all of a sudden, you started, like, saying things that I'm just going, what is she talking about? And I remember just saying, in the name of Jesus, I command you to go. Now, please don't take this husband's to, you know, if she wants to go shopping and say, I command you, the demon, get out of her. Um, But I'm just saying that you believed a lie in that time. And immediately you went, wow, thank you for doing that. It was like, I mean, a very unusual experience. But I remember just God sort of, speaking to me and saying, you need to take authority for her in this situation and ask Satan to get out of here. 
and I don't know, you know, Satan, demons, whatever, but it was just something that was there, and again, very unusual experience, but, uh, and the other thing I, I remember you saying when our kids were little was, I'm just, like, you're homeschooling, and you got kids, well, I don't know, three, six, eight, clamoring all over you, and you would say, I just need somebody to tell me the truth. I know the truth, but I, just somebody, one of my girlfriends, just call me and please tell me the truth. And, you know, we consider ourselves to be so enlightened and sophisticated in this country, and we don't see so much the maybe the manifestations of satanic influence in everyday life, other than if you follow a homeless person around for a little while, if you look under the bridges and hear what people are muttering and saying, there is definitely satanic influence and deception going on in them. Uh, But my point is more in other nations of the world, perhaps, we see more of it. Where the manifestations are, yes. seem to be more pronounced. Right, right. I, I just think in America it's just so subtle. I mean, no, we, we've learned how to, to cover hide. it up, yeah, right? Hide. Well, and how to lock people away in institutions or or label them as having some other mental illness or... But I think our, our real message in the book is you do have an enemy of your soul. He is called lo- the liar. And he is the liar, the father of lies. And Revelation says he's persecuting the brethren day and night. And if we don't think we're in a battle between the world, the flesh, and the devil, we are sorely misunderstanding what the Word of God says. We once had an experience where we were staying at a motel, and uh, the woman who was managing that motel obviously had something going on in her life. It, this was in a in Sedona in an area that is known to have a lot of new age influence and um, I believe that there's a lot of spiritual warfare going on there just over that region, over that geographic region. And this woman took an instant dislike to Alan and uh, they had had a we were sparking an altercation a little bit. <laughs> uh, about a television set one year. And then we went back to this same motel a year later and stayed in another room. But this woman was still the manager there. The people downstairs from us had complained about the water dripping from our room down into their bathroom and I don't know I I think that there was something with the plumbing this room had been newly remodeled I don't think that they had their the drain the overflow from the bathtub was not properly installed and when water rose up in the bathtub it just leaked through but the manager sent a girl to come up and check our room to see what we had done, if we had that we were how, having a water fight all had, over the floor, how we had so irresponsibly flooded our bathroom, and 
the girl came in and looked at our bathroom. The floor was dry. There was nothing there. And then the next morning, that manager said that the girl had told her that our bathroom was completely flooded and she we were supposed to stay for two nights and she ejected us. Invited us to leave. Here we were, like adults. We were not partying like a, college kids in this motel room. We're in our 30s. We have three children at home. And <laughs> she... She didn't know all that. She honey. kicked us out based on what she wanted to believe of the testimony of a girl who was under her influence that was a total fabrication, a total lie. And and I believe personally that this was a satanic attack on Alan and me trying to ruin our marriage getaway <laughs> weekend. It's supposed to be a really nice romantic time, but it was... Uh quite a I think row. things like that happen and they're not random. I believe that they're a direct mm-hmm. tar- yeah, targeted attack of Satan. No doubt about it. I mean Jesus talked about the devil and it's it's very awkward in today's society. I write a column for the Glendale Star and Peoria Times and every week I have since November two thousand four and you know I I'm I've many times wanted to write an article about the devil, you know, mm. and I thought well, what are these people going to think? You know, <laughs> all that kind we of stuff. We know what you know? they're going to so, think. So I always thought, say, the liar. But if you think of some of the characteristics, again, we were alluding to this of the enemy. Now, now, if you're that person and you've got that dragon's egg and you're the hurting one right now, and believe me, you might be hurting, but believe me, there's lots of people that would like to have your worst days. Mm. I just want to encourage you with that. But if you think of some of the characteristics of Satan, what he does, he lies. Does that sound familiar? Uh, he tempts. He's the tempter. He's the deceiver. Deceive, dominate, destroy. That's his pattern. Deceive, dominate, and destroy. Okay? He's the accuser of the brethren. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's uh, the persecutor. Alan was just saying, talk about that. The destroyer. All these have to do with words. Remember, uh, it's one thing I always teach the guys that God will walk and talk with you, mm-hmm. but the devil will just talk to you. And when you have something that's not walking with you, but just talking to you, that should be an alarm, okay? Because there's power in words, and there's power in lies. There's much more power in truth, but there is power in lies if you don't know the truth. And a lot of people just live on these, on this bad stuff that comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. All of those voices are speaking, so let's get past it. Thank you for listening to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. You can visit Dr. Ed Delph at nationstrategy.com. And for Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. On the website, you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book, along with the newly revised application guide. You can also schedule a personal coaching session, a one-on-one counseling session, and register for one of Alan's upcoming webinars. On behalf of Alan, Polly and Ed, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week.
You can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and apps. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Flesh Eaters. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Uh, We're preaching through the first third of Isaiah, where God has promised that he would bring a future anointed king who would save his people. It's about 730 BC, give or take, and Israel had split from Judah 200 years before this takes place. And they made, Israel had made Samaria its capital. So Isaiah, in our text, he's going to talk about Samaria or Jacob, Manasseh or Ephraim. Uh, All of those are in reference to Israel, the northern kingdom, with Judah in the south. Now, the reason I believe that he picks out these different names to describe Israel is because he's reminding us that Judah and Israel actually come from a long line of fighters. You probably remember this as you look at some of these names, but there is a history in Israel of the people of God being a fighting kind of people. So you'll remember that Jacob, the great man, the forefather uh, of the nation of Israel who became Israel, actually fought with God. That's why he didn't ever walk straight again, right? You'll remember also that after that, we had children, Joseph and Judah and his brothers, who fought as Joseph became one of the highest roles in Egypt. There was a fighting relationship there. And then later, of course, we find in our story here today that Israel and Judah have split because they are fighting at odds with one another. So the kingdom of Israel has joined up with King Rezin of Syria. And he has joined up with him against Judah. And they're fighting against Judah so that Israel has sort of joined the nations against one of his brother tribes and nations. Ahaz rejected God. We saw that in Isaiah 7. And he looked to Assyria, Assyria with an A, for help from Israel and Syria with an S. And they did all of this because they were looking self-confidently to themselves rather than God. Now, there are two things that I want you to remember this morning as we're looking at this text. Two things that I think will help you understand it. First, there is an irony about this text and where it's located. Because God just promised in the first seven verses of this chapter that He would send the Prince of Peace to bring universal peace to the people of this world. And yet, here we find that it is nothing but fighting. And second, God is actually speaking to Judah, but about Israel. So that God is expecting that as Judah is listening on on what's happened to Israel, that they will have some kind of self-reflection that this has something to do with them. I'd encourage you to read this story with the same kind of self-reflection. That God really has given us this story to say something to us. Now, I'm sure Judah would have been happy to hear of God's relentless anger against their enemy brother Israel. You'll notice three times in our text, there's this refrain that is repeated in verse 12, 17, and 21. For all of this, God says, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Sometimes God, God's hand is lifted out and stretched out for redemption, like when he saved Israel out of Egypt, but sometimes in judgment, like we find here. It is a relentless judgment of God. But these verses, they warned Judah and us about building a community on misdirected hopes. 
See, we'll see that self-reliance creates communities of self-seeking cannibals, while Christ-reliance creates local churches of self-giving disciples. Let me say that again. That's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to see that self-reliance creates communities of self-seeking cannibals, while Christ-reliance creates local churches of self-giving disciples. Uh, We're going to see this first in, in verses 8 to 12, where you'll see that proud hearts with positive vibes hope in the wrong thing. Now, as you look at verses 8 to 9, they tell us that God had sent word to Israel, probably through the prophets Hosea and Amos, and they had given the northern kingdom of Jacob, Israel, a message. And God said that he would show no mercy because Israel has not repented of their sins. God sent discipline after discipline, but they never looked to God. And God, he never writes checks with his mouth that his arm can't cash and judgment is coming. Now, verse 9 says the root of the problem that Israel had was this. Look there in verse 9. You notice it's that they have proud and arrogant hearts. The heart was really the seat or the core of who a person was. It was where their mind, their will, their emotions, their affections resided. And so here it says that at the heart of who they were, they were proud and they were arrogant. Now, you might be wondering, what does that mean? Well, verse 10, actually, it's so subtle you might miss it, but here we get a fascinating look into the window of the souls of these proud hearts and what they're believing at the core of who they are. When you look at this, it might not sound so bad, but just look at what they say. Verse 10, he says, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Now, a modern translation would be, we're going to come back stronger than ever and rebuild with better materials than before. So, for instance, sycamores are not as nice or valuable as cedars are. In other words, they're they're going to kind of build up from where they are and things are going to get better. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Now, this sounds really hopeful. In fact, in the wake of the toppling of the Twin Towers on 9-11, we had, true, we had two senators, Tom Daschle and John Edwards, who both actually quoted this very verse to talk about how we were going to restore ourselves and come back better than ever. It was an optimistic expectation that the USA would not only survive, but thrive. I mean, it sounds kind of like the sort of thing that you would hope that a, a leader would say and that he would thunder amidst diversity and the heart that you would want from other members of your team. But context matters. And God's not feeling optimistic about their optimism, right? I mean, just catch what he says in verses 11 to 12. This is God's response. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin, the leader of Syria, against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel. I thought they were friends with open mouth. And for all this anger, he has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. See, they rejected God's word in Israel and sought their own solutions. They did not listen to God's word. They did not trust or obey him. And God turned Israel's self-reliant solutions, being Syria, into a greater problem than they started with. And God's hand is still stretched out against them. Now just think about this carefully. God turned the hopes 
of their proud hearts on their heads by turning their dreams into nightmares. Their hopefulness displayed a dangerous self-reliance that God would not allow to continue. Now, don't miss this. This is important. Not all hope floats. Some hope sinks straight to the bottom. Not all hope is good and leads to happiness. Some hope leads to sorrow. Israel's lying prophets basically said, I'm okay and you're okay. We'll pull ourselves out of this and there's always something better just around the corner. All while rejecting God's word to God's people. Now catch this. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, false hopes can still be dangerous and even deadly. See, today, you need to be asking yourself, what is it that I'm hoping in? What is it that I am relying in, that I'm trusting with my life and my future? Where is your confidence located today? What is anchoring your soul? Did you know that sometimes God graciously turns our dreams into nightmares? It can happen. Maybe you've experienced it. Have you ever maybe been in a relationship or known someone in a relationship that it was a a romantic relationship where you knew that that person claimed to love Jesus, but they looked at the relationship and it looked like it was a kind of relationship that did not honor Christ. And it looked like that the longer that went on, the further that both of them seemed from Christ. And all of a sudden, it almost looked like the relationship exploded. And you were like, how in the world did that happen? It looked like it was just like off to the races, and then it just dissolved. Could it be that perhaps sometimes God blows up relationships and causes our dreams to become nightmares so that He can give us a better dream, something better than what we've been dreaming of, which is Himself? Maybe you are one of those who is parent of a teenager who all of a sudden doesn't like God or church. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, I've known parents that uh, I study that are great parents and their kids, they've had a kid or kids who haven't loved Jesus. We're not promised that good parenting equals Christian children. That's not what we're promised. That's not a promise of the gospel. It is a good gift and a good thing that we raise our children to love Christ. But ultimately, we need a miracle that we can't do ourselves, that we can't generate ourselves. We need God Himself to save our children. We need Him. And could it be that maybe sometimes, I've seen this, we have children who come to church and parents come with them, and then one day they show up and they're like, I don't know what happens. My teenage kid doesn't love God anymore. And could it be just maybe that for too long in our homes, not all the time, but sometimes we have had a self-reliant home. And slowly but surely, our kids have been watching parents who follow Jesus, but in the home, they don't see a distinctive Christianity about the way their mom and dads are living their lives. And slowly, an erosion of faith because they have not been trusting and listening to and following God's Word. I think that this could even happen on a large scale in denominations where they become self-reliant and God actually turns against them for the good of those who might turn and repent to the Lord. I think about, for instance, the PCUSA and other denominations who decades ago turned from believing in the Word of God and its sufficiency. They said, we're not just going to hold to the Word of God anymore. We're going to try to create truth as a community. And then a decade later, what we find is, is that they are actually redefining marriage to look just like the world. And here we are a decade after that, and we find that the church is actually plummeting in membership. It's dying. 
Could it be a movement of God where he is actually drawing people out of that body and against a congregation or a group of congregations that have chosen not to hear his word? See, God will sometimes graciously turn our dreams into nightmares to save us from an optimistic self-confidence. God doesn't want something from us. He wants something for us. The disasters of this life should empty us of false hopes and fill us with hope in God. But there's a second thing I think we see here in this text. Notice that God sent disaster to drive his people to seek him. That's what we find in these verses, in verses 13 to 17. Now when you get to verse 13, I find a clarification of what's going on here. Notice what he says. He explains why Israel's hopes were dashed. He says this, God says, The people, in verse 13, did not turn to him who struck them, being God, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. Just think about it. Israel is God's people. They face the hostility of the world turning upon their heads as judgment for looking to the nations and their gods for help. Things got worse and worse and they still refused to turn to God. Now I'm not saying that all disaster is because we have been disobedient. We live in a broken world. But do you believe that no disaster or difficulty comes because of our sin? I don't think the Bible would say that. I think the Bible would say that every difficulty that comes upon us should cause our eyes to be lifted up from ourselves and our world around us to the God who is sovereign over us. See, things got worse and worse and they still refused to look and inquire. Inquire of the Lord of hosts. Now this word inquire, it's an interesting word that he uses here. Uh, It's a word that means to seek with care. So as we look here in Isaiah 19, the same word is used where God's people were inquiring. They were inquiring after all kinds of things, just not God. They inquired of idols, sorcerers, mediums, necromancers. But nowhere, nowhere do we see that they sought with care their covenant God. Catch this, Yahweh of heavenly armies. They looked to little Syria to protect them from Assyria when Yahweh, their covenant God of heavenly armies, was never called or contacted. What a failure on the people of God not to look to Him for help that only He could provide. I mean, you can hear the heart of God here. He struck them so that they would turn to Him and seek Him. I need to hear and respond afresh to God's life-giving, transforming Word. Just take note of the tragedy of Israel along with Judah. They thought the biggest disaster was Assyria, and they didn't realize that there was a greater disaster on the horizon. God is a greater disaster for hearts not hoping in God. Their failure to humble themselves before God's Word and God's discipline meant that they faced an even greater disaster than the enemies all around them. The Lord of hosts cut them off. You can only hardly miss the devastation of verses 14 to 17. Just look there. God's loving compassion, the great compassion of God that we sing about, that we delight in, that we hope in. Notice here that that compassion turns away from them in His anger and it is still not satisfied. Just look. Verse 14. So it says, He says, the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail. 
palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. And those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Verse 17, therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on the fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer. Every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Now notice, the head represented the elders, those spiritual leaders in the community. And the tail represented those lying prophets who said, hey, things are going to get better, better soon. Just hold in there. God holds the whole nation in between accountable for being led astray by false teaching. Did you notice that even the fatherless, the orphans, and the widows, who God cares for everywhere in the Bible, cannot move God to compassion and His anger still burns? What a horrible, scary, fearsome indictment. I think this is just important really quickly to remind us all. Healthy spiritual leadership still matters. You need a church and you need leaders who lead you to hope in God and to listen to His Word, which climaxes in God's Son, Jesus Christ. You need godly leaders who remind you week in and week out that your ultimate and great war, the battle that you are waging, is not ultimately against flesh and blood, but about spiritual evil and high places. That your greatest enemy is not an enemy that you can see and touch, but an enemy that is on attack of your heart that is seeking to cause you to believe lies about who God is and who you are in relationship to God. A spirit that would love, if you do not know God, for you to believe that God is just fine with that. Or that if you do love God, that you would not believe that all that God has said is true about you is actually true. You need leaders who are pressing you towards the reality that your greatest problem is actually an unseen enemy and your greatest solution is actually your great unseen God. That's what you need. We need people who drive us not towards little sayings that make us feel better as we walk out a door, but the actual Word of God that breathes life into hearts that are dead and that breathes more life and energy into hearts that have trusted Christ for salvation. We need leaders who do that. See, the reality is that your church will likely shape you more than you shape it. Uh, as you read verses 18 and 19, you'll, you'll notice that there, there's a fire that's raging. I think there are actually two fires simultaneously going. So first, wickedness burns like fire. And Isaiah has already described wicked people as the briars and thorns, who here are consumed by their sin. In other words, this is the boomerang effect of sin. You throw sin out, you sin, it goes out. But notice these false hopes that they've been putting self-reliant confidence in actually become fuel for the fire that comes back and consumes them. In fact, God created the world, that's what I believe, in such a way that to disobey Him will bring disaster upon yourself because it's the way that God has created the world that honoring Him and obeying Him works. Sinning does not. Sinning brings judgment upon you. But notice the second cause of that fire in verse 19. It is the will of God on display and the wrath of God against wickedness. 
In other words, it doesn't just turn out that things don't work out. There's an active stirring up of God, of enemies against one another. And here, even in the people of God, the people of God against one another, Israel and Judah. In other words, this is what's happening. We're told in verse 19 that it it grows so bad, the wrath of God, that it works out in this. Verse 19, no one spares another. That's the, the working and exercising of the wrath of God here. No one is sparing one another. We look away from God to seek other things. And we put our confidence in, in other things other than God. Confidence that we should only have in Him and His Son Christ. Did you know that we actually become less human for it? And so do the people around us in our own eyes. We were made to be image bearers of God. And if we are not worshiping God as we ought and obeying Him and serving Him, then all of a sudden humanity loses that dignity in our eyes and our hearts. And we no longer see ourselves or others as created in God's image. And we will treat them as less than human, less than those bearing the image of God. We will treat people as commodities. People as products to be used for ourselves rather than image bearers of God who ought to draw us into worship of God. That's what happens here. People who become a means to an end rather than those humans created in the image of God. And in verses 20 to 21, we find Isaiah utilizing the image of cannibals to describe the way their relationships look. They slice to the right and to the left, taking their pound of flesh from one another, but never being satisfied. In fact, we find the brother tribes of Israel. Manasseh and Ephraim, those sons of Joseph that represent the northern kingdom. We find that these sons of Joseph are actually now devouring one another, these brothers. But they're still hungry. Apparently, Ephraim wasn't like, you know, providing enough sustenance. And they're like, I'm still hungry. And so he says, well, what other brothers are out there? Well, Judah. Well, I'll eat Judah too. And so here we find that still hungry, they turn and take a slice out of Judah. Don't miss this. A community built on positive vibes and self-confidence that refuses to seek God will eventually turn in on itself in cannibalism. See, Israel turned on Judah for self-preservation and out of desperation. But this was a warning to Judah as much as a description of Israel. And Paul actually warns the church in a very similar way of how fleshly self-confidence can result in cannibalism. That's right. Even as believers who have the Spirit of God, we need to watch out for our hearts who still can fall into fleshly tendencies. Paul says this in Galatians. You'll remember where he talks about the difference between living in the flesh and the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And do you remember what he says in Galatians 5.15? He reminds them about living in the flesh. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Cannibalism, right? See, when our confidence and our hopes shift from God to ourselves or anything else, we will use people for what we can get out rather than what we can give. But what is the the sort of parallel analogous to? What are examples of what it looks like when we're biting and devouring one another? Well, I think that Paul gives us some examples through evidences of the flesh, but, but think about some of these practical ways that we might see it. 
You know, some Christians will talk about someone's gifts as lesser or will highlight their weaknesses rather than looking at obvious ways that God's at work in their lives. Have, I mean, how many pastors have you seen who have actually used congregations to make much of themselves rather than much of God? Congregations can gossip not just about their pastors but other members and even visitors tearing them down so they can build themselves up. And even some gospel-centered churches seem to compete with other gospel-centered churches talking about their failures rather than what God is doing for his good. And listen up. This appetite for flesh, the flesh of others, begins ultimately with a self-confident heart that believes that that we are right and we are self-reliant and able in and of ourselves to do what we need to do rather than an utter dependence on God and his mercy and grace. See, a self-confident heart is seeking to satisfy its insatiable appetites apart from God and ends in a community of cannibals. Now, what do we need? A Snickers bar is not going to do it. If we want to satisfy those deep longings, we need more than that. But don't miss this either. Are you with me? Cannibalism isn't merely an accident that happens when people turn away from God. Are you hearing this? This cannibalism here in in Isaiah is actually the active judgment of God on display as a picture of the anger of God that has not been satisfied any more than the restless appetites of a people running aimlessly after the world. You with me? We need some good news, you know, with all this cannibalism stuff. Here it is. Jesus sacrificed his flesh, that's his body, so that we don't have to chew on one another anymore. We have Jesus. In fact, Paul, speaking of communion that they did every time they gathered together in 1 Corinthians 11. It says that when we take communion as a church, the bread and the cup represent Jesus' body and the blood of the new covenant. So that we are literally eating Christ, figuratively. It's a demonstration, but you get what I'm saying. We are actually feasting on Christ, who is the bread of life. Jesus came to deal with God's wrath for sinners, both eternally in hell and in the lake of fire. But also catch this, there's another thing that Jesus came to do. He came to deal with God's wrath on display presently in self-reliant relationships that erupt in hostility. God came uh, in this moment to bring peace amongst us so that heaven can, in a sense, be on display in the here and now in our body. So the cure for self-reliance is a Christ dependence that transforms us from self-seeking to self-giving. See, the gospel brings future peace into our present experiences. Now, Paul tells us this very same thing as one of the profound works of the gospel, speaking to non-Jews who are far from God in the church in Ephesus. And if you look in Ephesians 2, 13 to 16, you'll see what Paul says the gospel did for those who had hostility amongst one another, Jews and Gentiles. Not just Israel and Judah, the brother tribes, but even enemies far from God. Here's what Ephesians 2, 13 to 16 says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Catch this. Thereby killing. Hostility with God being killed means that we can live in peace with one another. 
that's a blessing that the gospel brings to you and me in Christ. So catch what this means. The more we chew on Christ, the less we will chew on one another. See, we must seek Christ as our confident hope if we want peace with God and others. So let me end with some questions that should answer themselves and how you can fight the drift towards self-reliance and grow in your confidence and hope in Christ. Here's one. Are you praying sincerely daily, praising God for His provision in Christ and begging Him for the help with relationships that you need help with? Or have you gradually given up on God and started trusting yourself? You know, maybe you're this morning thinking about a relationship you've just given up on. Could it be that like, actually you gave up on God before you gave up on that relationship and it was so subtle You drifted away so subtly you didn't even notice it? Are you studying God's Word alone, too, and with others, learning more and more of Christ to pry your restless heart away from that natural tendency towards self-reliance to a Christ-reliant? Are you looking to immersing yourself in God's Word with an eye towards Christ so that you can make sure that your direction is set right, that it's not set on the things of this world, but it is set on Christ. And to remind you constantly that that ultimate war that you're in is not flesh and blood, but spiritual evil. What it basically says is not like now you have an opportunity to really get to know yourself or to really make yourself known. What he actually says is you need to actually live in the Spirit, and that is shown through self-giving sacrificial love. In other words, there's an otherness about the Spirit and the way that He works in and through you. And so this morning, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, do you have a local church that you are serving in where the Spirit is actually using the gifts that He has given you to bless others and to build up the church as 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 says? Now that's what God has made you for. That's what He recreated you for in Christ. He caused you to be born again for. is to bring glory to Himself through your relationship to himself, his son, and the church. So we understand a local church is the primary place that God has called Christians to serve one another. I think Hebrews would add, and all the more as you see the return of Christ drawing near. See, we're not serving people to be eaten, but to give ourselves over to them. Let me tell you a little bit of the fruit in closing that you should expect. The Bible tells us there's fruit of actually self-sacrificial love. And I'm just going to give this quickly to you. I don't have a lot of time to dwell here like I want to. But here's what fruit of this kind of love work does. We find first in 1 Timothy 3.13, a saying to deacons who are servants. This is what he says, For those who serve well as deacons, serving, gain a good standing for themselves, and also, catch this, great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? As they are serving faithfully, Their confidence in Christ is a gift that is given to them for their faithful service. And I think that's true for deacons, sure. I think that's also true for other Christians. Not only is it a gift of more confidence and faith in Christ, second, Ephesians 3.10 says, you might not feel like it when you're taking out the trash after a meal, but I believe that what Ephesians 3.10 says is that angels and demons are actually looking down on you, sacrificially taking that trash out, and spellbound wonder at the way that you are giving yourself to serve others sacrificially in a way that even angels are looking out in spellbound wonder. They are startled by the reconciliatory work of God on display in our little local church that you might think is so unimpressive. Uh, Angels above think it's very impressive. So says Ephesians 3.10. Third, 
Jesus tells his disciples that when we love each other in these self-sacrificing ways, that it's actually good evangelism, uh, evangelistic plan. You'll remember that Jesus served his disciples, washed their feet. And then Jesus said, tell you what, I want you to go and love one another as I have loved you. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. That's how you're going to know that you're followers of Jesus Christ, is that you are serving and loving them sacrificially. Fourth, Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 tell us this is how the Spirit works through us to build up the church. It says we are sacrificing ourselves for one another. And finally, fifth, we look like Jesus when we do this, who is the ultimate peacemaker in Galatians 6, 1 to 2. We are peacemakers like Christ is when we seek to lay down our lives for others. Let's pray.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.